Our holy, gracious Father, we thank you for this great privilege you've given to us this morning to hear the gospel. There are countless men and women right now who are separate from you, who are condemned, who would give anything to be able to hear the gospel and be saved. Yet it is too late for them. But Lord, you have given us this privilege to hear the gospel now, for some to repent and be saved, for many others, to know again of your love toward us, to see once again the height, the width, the depth of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we ask for your help this day to apprehend and comprehend the truth of Christ to us. And Lord, I ask for special grace this morning, for I believe what you want to teach us this day transcends human understanding. You desire that we would understand these truths, not just with our minds, but in our hearts. You desire that we would grasp it in the inner man, in our souls, in the depths of our being. And Lord, we are so weak, we are so frail, we're so filled with unbelief. It is not possible for us without your help. So God, on the front end of our study, we call out to you and we pray for every person here and even our children. Lord, through your spirit, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe and receive the great truth of our adoption into your family as sons by the blood of Christ once and for all. And that truth would be so grand, so powerful and beautiful. It would transform us as we sit. It would change our perspective of our, ourselves, of you, of our relationship, and of our mission and our place in this world, so much so that, Lord, it would lead us to a new trajectory of life that will bring you greater glory on the earth. We, therefore, we commit humbly, Lord, we plead with you, commit this time to you. Lord, remove every distraction. Lord, we, Lord, uh, we pray that you would help us set aside every entangling sin of unbelief and that we would fix our eyes on Christ alone. Pay all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open to Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And if, for the reading of God's word, if you would stand. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Please be seated. For me, for so much of my Christian life, I understood the gospel legally and not also relationally. It's both and, not either or. I saw the gospel in, in the negative terms, how it forgave me of sin, how it rescued me from the domain of darkness and brought me into the domain of light, how I will go to heaven and be at peace forever. That was the focus of my understanding of the gospel. The relational aspect was secondary to me. It was very dim for me. 
maybe an event that clarified my understanding was about a year ago. My wife and I were at home, and I believe she was uh, knitting or doing puzzles or, or something like that, and I was uh, reading a book. It's usually the opposite. I'm not, I'm not that I'm knitting, but uh, <laughs> I'm watching TV or something, goofing around, and she's doing something godly. But on this you know, unique night, I was reading William Horner's book, Living by Grace, and, and I was, we were sitting next to each other. And I came upon that portion of why on Luke 15, the prodigal son, why the father allowed his son to leave. In the, in the Jewish setting 2,000 years ago, the father has had absolute authority over their children. He could have commanded him to do anything and everything and would have been legally rightfully right, right of him to do so. And yet when the younger son makes this audacious uh, request to, to leave and give up, to receive a portion of his inheritance and to leave the father, the father gives him his request. William Horton was explaining it's because the father wanted a son and not a slave. He could have commanded him, no, you will not do such a thing. You will stay here. You will work on the farm. You will do everything I tell you. No and buts or ors. Discussion is over. Get back to work. He could have done that. But what, we, what he would have had is a slave, a servant, an employee, and no relationship. The father, because of his love for his son, took a risk gave his son what he wanted with the hope and the prayer that one day this rebellious son will return to him and this father-son relationship would be restored. When I read that, uh, you know, I broke down in tears, shared that with my wife, and a whole new horizon of understanding my relationship with, with God, the father was open to me. That is the subject to which we return this morning in Galatians chapter 4. Our adoption as God's sons. We were his enemies. He made us his friends. Not just his friends. He brought us into his family to be his children. And this is not a temporal, temporary uh, situation. It's a permanent, un immutable, unchanging situation status that God has given to us in Christ. So, of all the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ, this is one of the greatest. J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, I think I've quoted this several times, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. I think about that with you. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship between God and us. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. I want to continue with Packard. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Father, one's holy father, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And it's not just the father. Every member of the Trinity is involved in this, in this process, in this transaction. The Father destined us to be his children. And so he sent the Son. 
The Son is sent to make us his brothers and sisters. And the Father sent the Holy Spirit so that we will be made fully aware of our sonship, our full rights as sons of God. Mark Stibb wrote, Adoption is a great gift of the Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead are involved in our adoption as sons. So with that theological understanding, let's go to Galatians 4. I don't want to spend too much time on the first three verses because really it is a restatement or a re-explanation of Galatians 3, 23 through 29. We have spent time on this before. Uh, Just make some short statements of this. Point one, our status before Christ. Verses one and two, it's all about um, an heir before he is of age. He is all intents and purposes. He is as a slave. Even though as a son, he is an owner of everything, before that certain age, depending on the culture, Paul was alluding to Roman culture, uh, but for our culture, it's different. For every culture, it's different. But depending on the age set by the father, he is all intents and purposes. He has no rights. He has no privileges. He has no authority as a legal owner of everything. Uh, illustration that came to mind is an episode of the Cosby Show years ago. You guys, some of you guys are too young to remember the Cosby Show. Uh, I was not a big fan of the Cosby Show. That was not my cup of tea. I think once you're a parent, you, you appreciate it more. But there was this episode called um, Vanessa's Rich. So I had to actually look it up on YouTube. It's on YouTube if you want to see it for yourself. And the whole thing's about how Vanessa Huxtable, the second daughter of the Huxtable family, got into this huge fight, a physical fight at school because a few friends of hers were... Uh, making fun of her and uh, kind of bullying her because she is so rich. Right? They visited her house. They saw how they lived. They saw the furniture. And at school, they were making fun of her house. She is a rich girl. So she's back at home explaining this fight to uh, mom and dad. And she said this. She said, none of this would have happened if we weren't so rich. And then Bill Cosby turns to her and he said, you need to get something straight. Mom and dad are rich. You have nothing. (laughs) So I tell my kids that, right? That's my sofa. Don't break it, right? That's that's my watermelon. I'm going to eat it. I don't know. (laughs) This is all ours. You have nothing. So that's the illustration here, right? So Paul is bending this illustration a little bit of a slave. In all intents and purposes, you could be son of a king, but if you're before the aid set by the father, you're just like a slave. Right? Nothing belongs to you. So Paul says in verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were figuratively children before Christ, we were also enslaved. We were bound. We were under the authority Right? We weren't free. We didn't have any authority. We weren't free at all. We were bound to the elementary principles of this world. And I read pages and pages about elementary principles. Found four times in Paul's writings, twice in Galatians 4, and twice in Colossians 2. It's an ambiguous term. Elementary principles? Uh, so the translators had to really wrestle with how to translate this. The Revised Standard Version translated as elemental spirits in the universe. New American Standard Version, elemental things of the world. NIV, the basic principles of the world. The Phillips paraphrase, the authority of basic moral principles. This is a difficult verse. What is Paul saying here? Several interpretations have been proposed. I don't want to belabor these points. I don't want to confuse you uh, right now. Of all the proposed uh, possibilities, you know, interpretations, 
Philip Reichen was the most helpful. He says it's just another way to describe the law here, right? And why is Paul using this phrase? Is because he's talking to a mixed audience. If he was speaking only to Jews, he would say, we were all enslaved to the law before Christ. But there, in the audience in the Galatian church, there are Gentiles who didn't grow up under the law. They grew up as, as they would say, barbarians, without the law, outside the law of God. They never heard of the Torah. They never knew the Ten Commandments. And yet, God has also given them the law, Romans 1, in their consciences. Right? These are the ABCs of God's moral will given to everyone. So for Jews, God gave his moral, ethical will in tablets of stone. And so they were under the law of God. But for Gentiles, maybe for some of you, you didn't grow up in the church. You didn't know the Ten Commandments. You never saw that movie. But even though you knew it was wrong to lie, wrong to steal, wrong to cheat, so on and so forth, because God's law was written in your conscience, in your hearts. And these are the elementary principles that's in the world for every human being. So no one is without excuse. Now these are the elementary principles. Like these are something that you learn, you get reared in, and you graduate and you move on. You're supposed to move on from them. But all of us, we were enslaved, we were we were in this loop. I used to do some ministry at Biola University years ago, maybe like 15 years, 20, 18 years ago, and I met a guy who was an eighth year senior at Biola University. Eighth year, it's a private school. And at the end of every semester, for whatever reason, he kept dropping classes and he couldn't graduate. And I was about to cry for the guy. Eighth year, and he's dropping classes again. He had to come back the next year. He was stuck in this loop of dropping classes. He couldn't graduate from a private school. That's, that's purgatory. That's like hell, and that's private college. You can't graduate. You have to pay for another semester of tuition. Well, likewise, that's what, that was our experience. We couldn't move on. Why? Because of our sins. If we were without sin, we would have moved on pleasing God and having favor with God and being with him forever. But because we're such sinners, right, we were ensnared, we were in bondage, we couldn't get out. What was supposed to be a temporary situation, we were stuck there permanently. That's Paul's point. Right? We were slaves. And then God did something. God in his mercy and grace. God intervened. God stepped in and changed everything. Point number two, how we came to be in Christ. Verse four, but when the fullness of time had come, the Greek word is plero. <laughs> the idea is like a cup is full and it's brimming over. It's the idea of just a lady is pregnant and she's about to give birth. Right? It's time has come. And when the time has come, it's fullness. This time sent by God, God did something. And what did he do? He sent someone that met all the three qualifications to redeem his people. This person that God sends uh, must fulfill these three qualifications. First of all, he must be God. And so, God sent forth into the world not another sinner, not another king, not another prophet or a priest. God sent his one and only son. God sent God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. In Mark chapter 1, 9 through 11, in Jesus' baptism, when he came up and out of the water, Mark says, the heavens opened up. The spirit descended on him like a dove. And there was an audible voice. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. To redeem mankind, it must be 100% God. 
must be God himself because our sins are against God. Though we had sinned temporarily, we have sinned against an infinite God who is infinitely holy. Therefore, only the sacrifice of God would atone for our sins. So God sent his son, but also he was born of woman. So he's not only fully God, 100% God, he's 100% man. He was fully human. That's what I was saying last week, right? When Superman acted like Clark Kent, acted like he was weak, acted like he got hurt. You know, when he stubbed his toe, he had to feign you know, stumbling and having his you know, foot or toe being hurt. It was all a facade. It was all an act, not Jesus. He was fully human. When he cried in Gethsemane, those were real, te real tears. He when he screamed in agony at, on Calvary, on the cross, that was a real scream. The pain he felt, he wasn't acting or pretending like he was weak like you and I. No, every temptation, every pain was genuine because he was fully human while he was fully God. In order to deliver us, in order to conquer Satan, in order to have dominion over death and bring us into his kingdom, he had to be God, he had to be human, he was son of God, born of woman, and thirdly, born under the law meaning he was responsible to God's law like everyone else. He was like us, right, under the elementary principles of this world. He was born in our same circumstance where every demand of God given to us was given to him. There was no special category, special allowance. You are my son. You, know, you graduate without going to the ABCs. Those same demands were placed on him, and yet he was not caught in that eighth year senior, unable to graduate because you keep dropping classes. You have to visit the finance department to make your payments. No, he graduated. He was set free because Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law, fulfill righteousness. So Jesus, in every way, he was righteous. He was sinless. That's why death had no hold on him, right? The sting of sin, the power of sin is death. The proof of our sin is that we die and we are dead, period. Jesus died, but death could not hold him because he was without sin. And this vindicates his deity, this vindicates his sinlessness, his perfect righteousness. And that third day, he rose from the grave. This is the one that God sent forth into the world. Why did he send Jesus into the world? Two reasons. Verse 5b, God sent forth the Son to redeem those who were under the law. He alone was qualified. He came for a twofold mission. The first mission was to ransom us. The first mission was to purchase us. And that shows our helplessness. We were slaves. Right, we couldn't redeem or ransom or pay, pay our own sins, atone for our own debts, our own sins and wickedness and evil to free us ourselves. We were in that hopeless, helpless predicament. And he came. And he, it's a financial uh, idea here. It's a financial transaction. He made a payment. It's like you go to a marketplace and you see slaves and you pay money and you purchase that, purchase that slave. You set that slave free. That is the, the idea here. And that is what Jesus did. Now, how did he do it? We know this. I mean, he did it. And, and he knew you by name. I mean, he knew you by name, personally. He had individual love and compassion for you. And knowing your sinfulness, he gave not with gold and silver precious stones, but he purchased us with his own blood, which is a metaphor for his death. 1 Peter 1.18. Matthew 20, 28, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. What is the ransom price? It's his life. Acts 20, 28, that is why Paul said, care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, it gets more beautiful than this. Like this is, like I, I knew this. But from this point on, it's still someone new to me. We were very new to me. He didn't just ransom me and save me and forgive me and, and set me free. Jesus came for a more, most beautiful, glorious purpose so that we might receive adoption as sons. A twofold purpose. One is to ransom. Second, that we might receive adoption as sons. We are now brought into his family. You know, ESV used the word adoption as sons, but that word in the Greek is much, is more pregnant with meaning than that. NIV, I think, does a better job here. NIV is the full rights of sons, right? Christ came to give us all the rights, the full, complete rights and privileges of sons of God. Francis Lyle said the profound truth of Roman adoption was that the adoptee was taken out of his previous state and placed in a new relationship of son to his new father. At that moment, all of his old debts were instantly canceled. And in effect, the adoptee started a new life as part of this new family. The new father was liable for the actions of the adoptee and each owed the other reciprocal duties of support and maintenance. This is uh, what the father has done through his son, bringing us to his family and making us his sons with all the rights that Jesus has now belongs to us. Now, Place your finger, if you can, in Galatians 4. Turn one or two pages over to Ephesians 1. Paul talks about uh, the fatherhood of God 40 times in his epistles. Eight of those 40 are found in Ephesians. And chapter 1 sets all of this up of the fatherhood of God for the Christian. And I want to take a moment out to look at Ephesians 1 because it, 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 it um, unfolds just the, the, the weightiness, the, the, the grandeur of what God did for us in adopting us as his sons. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then look at those two words, in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Now, verse 4 tells us that before the foundation of the world, he chose us. You build a building, you lay the foundation first, and then the building. So God is saying, before even the foundation was built for the world, even before them, before there was anything in the world, God knew us, and God chose us. And not only that, he predestined each and every one of us for inclusion into his family to have a father-son relationship. Now, what is the heart motivation behind this eternal purpose? In love, he predestined us. It is in love he predestined us. With this undeserving love, it was not a, 
a cold and calculated decision on the part of God. This prepositional phrase, in love, in agape. I should underline that. I should highlight that. You should not overlook those two words. That reveals to us God's heart behind our adoption. J.I. Packer said, God adopts us out of his free love. Not because our character and record shows us worthy to bear his name, but despite the fact that they show the opposite. We are not fit. We are not fit for a place in God's family. You are not fit for a place in God's family. The idea of his loving and exalting us as sinners as he loves and has exalted the Lord Jesus, sound ludicrous and, ludicrous and wild. And yet, that and nothing less than that is what our adoption means. This was according, verse 5, to his pleasure of his will, um, the, the purpose of his will, excuse me. The Greek word purpose, it's a compound word, and it means... Uh, the word eulogy, the, the good part, is, is, uh, is one of the words. And it means it's delightful pleasure. It's uh, satisfaction, his joy. That's why New American Standard translates verse 5, the kind intention of his will. It connotes warmth, delight, and joy. So he predestined to adopt us out of love according to his will, which was delight which was joy. It was his joy to do this. A lot of quotes this morning. Mark Stibbs said, it pleased him to unfold, enfold us in the eternal family of faith. It brought him joy. It thrilled his heart. Even though this adoption would not be cost-free, God did not undertake this task by gritting his teeth, clenching his fist. no. It was his, and I would add, good pleasure as well as his kind intention of his will. Please go back to uh, Galatians 4. We saw who we were before Christ, how we came to be in Christ. We saw why God sent the Son, and then... uh, why, point four, God sent the Holy Spirit. Now, if you lose me here, you're going to, don't lose me here, please. Okay. This is the most important relationship we have as Christians, our relationship with the Holy Spirit. It is through the Holy Spirit we have a relationship with God and relationship with Jesus Christ. We're in the age of the Spirit. The Spirit mediates Christ's blessings and benefits to us. It is through the Spirit we've been baptized into Christ, we're united with Him. It is through the Spirit Christ is in us and we are in Him. This is the most important relationship. We need to understand why the Spirit came. God sent the Son so that we might receive the status of sonship. God sent the Spirit that we might know the experience Experience of sonship. Experience of sonship. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I want you to know there are two sendings here. God sent the son and God sent the Holy Spirit. First of all, God sent the son into the world. The Spirit God sent, not to the world, to a specific place. Where did God send the Spirit? Into our hearts. The Son to the world, the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The first sending was to redeem the people who are not his family, to redeem them, ransom them, and to make them, transfer them as sons of God. That's the first sending of the Son. The sending of the Spirit is because we are sons. We are already Christians. Because we are sons, God sends the Spirit into our hearts. 
so that his sons and daughters would cry out with the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. The second sending is so that we might experience this sonship, that we might be made aware of our status, of our new relationship with the Father, all the rights and privileges and the freedom that we have as sons of God, and that's the Spirit's work, to know and experience the intimacy, the love and care. You know, experience, that word used to be a, you know, a bad word in our church. It used to be a, an unwelcomed word. I hope it is not any longer. I hope that it is what we're seeking after, in a sense, as we see Christ, that it be a fruit of our seeking after Christ. As what uh, Edward said, experimental religion, religious affections. It is something that the Spirit desires to work in our hearts. So I had to appeal to an authority that might help this more palatable to you, no one less than Pastor John MacArthur, right? So I found this, and he said here, this is part of his commentary on Galatians 4, that's the subjective experience that goes with the objective truth of salvation. You're saved when you believe in Christ, right? That's objective fact. The subjective experience that goes with it is that the Spirit enters into you and testifies to you that it is true. Paul put it this way. The Spirit witnesses with our spirit, Romans 8, that we are sons of God. How? By giving us the cry, Abba, Father. And that Abba, Father, it is a diminutive it is uh, an intimate way of saying, it is not exactly a different culture, but it is like saying daddy. It is like a, a child speak. It is not a proper way to address father. It is an intimate, relational, heartfelt way of relating to one's father. And that's the spirit that cries out from within us. Now, why do we need the Holy Spirit to do this? Why? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? I can say, you can say, Abba Father. That's, who, do, who can't say, Abba Father? Well, why, why is it hard? It's because, in mean, Luke 15, every day, where do we find ourselves? Every day, I don't know about you, I find myself coming from a distant country. I find myself every day making that long tread back to the Father where... I find myself in sin. I find, my, I find myself rejecting God, not trusting Him, not depending upon Him, not hoping Him, full of myself. And God opens my eyes and I repent and I'm turning back to the Father and what is in the tip of my mouth? It's not Abba, Father. What's in the tip of my mouth is, Father, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am not worthy to be your son. Make me a slave. Make me a servant. Make me an employee. I am undeserving of your love. Let me just work for you. That's my heart every day. That is innate. That is natural because of my sinfulness, my weakness, my carnality, my flesh. That is why I need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's why God's in the Spirit. And the Spirit enters my heart. And Romans 5, and that's Romans 5, 1 through 5, that, that's where I got saved. I, years ago, I'm showing my age, years ago, I got saved reading Romans 5. And I'll just cut to the chase of verse 5 where it says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit enters our hearts, and he, the Greek word there is it's just pouring to the last drop. It's not just a teacup full. It's not one gallon. It's pouring out a whole river full, pours out into our hearts. And what is he pouring out? God's love into our hearts. Right, that's what the Holy Spirit's doing. And when he does that, 
then and only then I can say, Abba, Father. Without the Father's love through the Spirit, I say, my judge, my king, my master, my employer, you know. But with the Spirit, I say, Daddy, Abba, Father. Now, uh, this experience, Thomas Goodwin described it this way. I'll shepherd you about the experience thing later. I, I, I will bring it back, so don't, don't be afraid. Just take that step with me. I'll bring you back a little bit later. But this is what the experience, how Thomas Goodwin, this Puritan pastor, described it. Picture a man walking along the road with his little boy holding hands, father and son, son and father. The boy knows the man is his father and that his father loves him. But all of a sudden, the man sweeps the boy up into his arms, embraces him, and kisses him. Now, the boy is actually no more a son when he's being embraced and kissed than he was before. The father's actions has not changed the status of his son. But oh, the difference in the enjoyment of the status. There is no change in status, but there is a difference in the enjoyment of the status. And I want to ask you right now, what is your experience of the Father right now? I, I got to guess, for, for most of you, you would say, you know God loves you, loved you because you're saved. And you know God will love you in heaven. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking right now, Honestly, your heart, internal monologue, testimony, what is your description of your relationship with the Father, your understanding of his love towards you? Would you say, I am barely loved by God? Right? When, I, when I see my life, what I'm going through, my experience in this world, in my family, my relationships, my work, my ministry, I'm barely loved by God. Oh no, I'm unloved by God. Oh no, because of what I'm going through, I am cursed by God. God has cursed me. Or would you say by the Spirit, I am lavishly loved by God right now because of God's love poured out into, our, into my heart through the Spirit because of what Christ has done. That's the experience. That's the enjoyment of the status of sonship that we are to have through the Spirit. And it's not this like, you know, this kind of proper kind of experience, this kind of like, you know, the, in verse 6, the word crying it's the word kratzon in the Greek. That's, I don't know, humbly, that's a weak translation. Because it's not just crying. It's more screaming. It is exclaiming. It is calling out. You do a, 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 a lexical study on this word kratzon, and it's really screaming. It's not crying. Only one time, if you do a concordance search of Abba in the New Testament, you'll find it in Romans 8, Galatians 4, and Mark 14, verses 32 to 36. And what is that context? It is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on his knees, sweating drops of blood. And he is contemplating the torment of the cross. Where if he separated from the Father, he would drink the cup of God's wrath. So he is so tormented, he, is, he says, I am sorrowful to the point of death. And he, it is there that he said, Abba, Father. Right Now, without the Spirit, he, I don't think he would have said, Abba, Father. He would have said, Eloi, Eloi. Right? My God, my God. You, you love me? How, what do you mean you love me? I'm going to go to the cross. You're not my intimate, loving, caring father. 
On the cross, he was separated from God. He did not say Father. He did not say Abba. He said Eloi because hell came to Calvary. But pre-Calvary, the Spirit attended to him. And so he, no matter what he was going to face, even in that valley of Gethsemane, he knew the Father's love. So outwardly, he was crying. He was sweating drops of blood in his heart. The Father's love was poured out into his heart. And that is why he went to the cross with joy. That is why he carried the cross with joy. That is why he hung on the cross and he finished the work that God gave him to do because the Father's love was poured out into his heart. And even in Gethsemane, he experienced that love and joy. So he cried out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. This is the experience that God is, for which God sent the Holy Spirit, because you are sons. You're already sons. But he sends the Spirit again and again and again. This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit, filled with gospel grace, gospel love, so that we cry to Abba, Father, and we become more and more like him. The final point, much time has passed. Our newfound status in Christ. I'll touch more next week. So now, what is our newfound status? We are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So contrast this with verses 1 and 2. We were under guardians. We were slaves. We had no rights, no ownership. We were stuck in that loop of slavery. God intervened, sent the Son, sent the Spirit. Now we not only have the objective newfound status as sons, we have the inheritance of sons. Where it's not just we just call God Father, we have to enjoy the Father and enjoy His blessings. We are not to live in God's kingdom as slaves and servants in fear. He is our Father. And we glorify him when we enjoy him and receive his blessings. Okay, now, three closing thoughts. Close our time with these three thoughts. First thought is how it applies to preaching. Second, how it applies to our Christian life, our Christian lives. And thirdly, how it applies to our hearts. First of all, application to preaching. I want to preach where the Holy Spirit would come. I want to preach, we want to preach here at Cornerstone where it is not man's work, it is God's work. That we sow in water, but God, God causes growth. How does that growth happen? By the Holy Spirit and not by our works of the flesh. We want to preach powerfully. How do we do that? It's by apostolic preaching. What made the preaching of the apostles so powerful and effectual as opposed to the preaching of the Judaizers? The Judaizers emphasized external religious works. The apostles emphasized the heart and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. The Judaizers focused on man's obedience, our response, our application, what we must do. The apostles focused on Christ and his perfect obedience. The Judaizers preached the law from the Old Testament. They taught the Bible. The apostles preached Christ from the Old Testament. They taught the Bible, but from the Bible, they preached Christ. So, powerful preaching, spirit-filled preaching is not loud preaching, right? It's not long preaching. I, I don't believe in long sermons, right? Believe it or not. Long doesn't mean good. Short can be great as well, right? Powerful preaching doesn't mean like just a lot of verses. Powerful preaching is only one kind when it is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, that kind of preaching causes the Holy Spirit to work mightily and powerfully. That's what Apostle Peter did in Acts 2. 
He proclaimed the gospel. He preached Christ. And then what happened? The Holy Spirit entered these religious leaders of Israel and they were cut to the heart. It says there in 238, their hearts were pierced. Their hearts were broken. Their hearts were cut up by the Holy Spirit. How did this happen? Because Peter preached Jesus. He preached Christ. Apostle Paul, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. Our message is a person. 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not claim, come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to do nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit and power. What is that power? It's proclaiming Christ, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on the power of God. How did that power manifest? Because Paul preached Jesus. Now, if there was an effective preacher of the gospel, was Charles Spurgeon. God used Spurgeon even to this day. I mean, his sermons are read to this day. People can't get enough of sermons, right? Where they, they dig up his sermons and they, our hearts are filled with the Spirit because of what he preached the hundreds of years ago. Why is that? Because he preached Jesus. He preached cross-centered messages. And I love, he said this, this is all Spurgeon. The Spirit of God bears no witness to Christless sermons. Leave Jesus out of your preaching, and the Holy Spirit will never come upon you. Why should he? Has he not come on purpose that he may testify of Christ? Did not Jesus say, He, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and, show, and shall show it unto you? Yes, the subject was Christ and nothing but Christ, and such is the teaching which the Spirit of God will own, be it ours never to wander from the central truth. May we determine to know nothing among men but Christ and his cross. The model of all true servants of God must be this. We preach Christ and him crucified. A sermon without Christ is in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Right? No Christ in your sermon, then you go home. And don't come back until you're ready to preach Christ. Because when we preach Christ, the Holy Spirit delights to glorify Jesus. Then he enters our hearts, fills us with God's love, and makes us more like God's son. Understanding the status that we have in Christ as adopted children, and we grow in holiness. Secondly, our application to the Christian life. This is where... Um, this is where I'm going to bring you back from experience, right? So you're saying you want spiritual power. You have a form of godliness, but you don't... I read religious effects. What is spiritual power? It's, I, I was reading excerpts from religious affections this week, and I just read three words, and I was like sharing my wife. I was, so, I was so broken. Three words were, Jesus is gentle. It's like, man, like, Jesus is gentle. That's spiritual power. Jesus is meek. Jesus is humble. See, theology of glory is power is like, you know, you rip up telephone books, right? You break ice boxes with your head and you handcuff me and I'll break it open. That's power and theology of glory. Theology of the cross, power is humility, gentleness, all the things I don't have, meekness, right? So you, we want this power. How do we get it? If you seek after the Holy Spirit, you won't get it. If you seek after the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you won't get it. If you seek after the experience of the Holy Spirit, you'll miss it. If you seek after Jesus, then the Holy Spirit will come. See, it's so paradoxical, right? We want the power of the Holy Spirit, so we pursue the Holy Spirit. That's the last thing the Holy Spirit wants. We pursue His gifts. We pursue the experience of knowing the Holy Spirit and then nothing. We seek Christ and we get everything. 
right? Importance of Christ-centeredness. Christ is all and in all. Right? We adore him. We believe in him. We trust him. We esteem him. Then we get everything. We get the gifts. We get the benefits. We get the blessings, the experience. All together as Christ is the center. <sighs> last quote, I promise you, Sinclair Ferguson said, oh, it's, yeah, last quote. The first thing to remember, of course, is that we must never separate the benefits, regeneration, justification, sanctification from the benefactor of Jesus Christ. The Christians who are most focused on their own spirituality may give the impression of being the most spiritual. But from the New Testament's point of view, those who have almost forgotten about their own spirituality because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. Historically speaking, whenever the piety of a particular group is focused on our spirituality, that piety will eventually exhaust itself on its own resources. Only where our piety forgets about ourselves and focuses on Jesus Christ will our piety nourished by the ongoing resources of the Spirit, bring to us from the source of all true piety, the Lord Jesus Christ. Final point is, I have to land this plane. Um, God sends the Spirit, and the sermon is not done. We have to finish out Galatians. Don't think this is the end of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit enters our hearts, pours out God's love so that we might enjoy our newfound status so that we might walk in the Spirit. The experience of the blessings of sonship is not the end. It's a means of walking in the Spirit. And what is walking in the Spirit? It means last week denying yourself, take up the cross and follow me. It means the spirit of holiness, spirit of righteousness, spirit of, spirit of Christ-likeness. The spirit of God tells me God loves me contra-conditionally. He knows all my sins and he loves me. Then the spirit's work in my heart is at that moment, I hate my sins. I hate my unrighteousness. God loves me even though he knows my sins. He still loves me. The work of the Spirit is at that instant I see my sins and I deny myself. See, the carnal false gospel is God loves me unconditionally, so I accept myself unconditionally, and you must accept me unconditionally. That's not the Holy Spirit working. That's a whole other Spirit working. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works towards holiness, where when we taste the love of God and his contra-conditional, unconditional love for us, our heart, because of his spirit is. We hate the old flesh, old self. We hate the, the man inside of us that loves sin and dwells in sin and lives for sin. We renounce, we confess, we repent, we carry our cross, and we follow Jesus. Right? The experience, the means of us, walking in the spirit, growing in righteousness, the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we dishonor you when we have the mindset of a slave or a servant and not as a son. We demean your grace. We, um, we, we box you in. We treat you as if you are like us when you are altogether holy, nothing like us. Lord, as the cross is proclaimed vividly before our eyes, crucified on our behalf. May it pierce our hearts and may it mortify our pride, cause us to humbly receive all the love you have given to us 
And may that love um, cause us to be filled with your spirit where we walk in a manner worthy of you, where we walk in obedience, in holiness, in righteousness, rejecting our flesh, living in the spirit. For that is our heartfelt prayer. It is impossible with us, but it is possible. That is your good and kind intention. So we, Lord, we rejoice and we trust and pray all this in your son's precious name. Amen.